These are volunteers who will give the final yes or no to the applicant based on his medical report, his psychological report, his financial report, and on his record as a member of this community, on his record as a responsible human being. In a word, is he worth saving? For the cold, hard fact of the matter is, somebody has got to be left out, and somebody has got to decide who shall live and who shall die. to the death panel to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod we do two shows a week the monday show is a special thank you bonus for patrons and the thursday is the public free episode so we do some unlocks but there are a bunch that are still just patron only as a thanks for your support so when you become a patron you also get access to the whole back catalog of bonus episodes And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, pre-order Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your public library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am joined by my co-hosts, Phil Rocco. Yo. And Abby Cardis. Hello. And, uh... I've been feeling really sick these last few months, uh, especially the last six to eight weeks. And that is because my chronic illness that has uh, disabled and blinded me is sort of rolling at this constant low flare as a result of my insurance company sort of issuing this automatic denial (laughs) and denying a medication that had controlled my disease for over a decade. So I've been without treatment um, for, for nine months, which has been pretty terrible. You know, we are talking about AI and healthcare today, but I'm also very, very deeply furious. I am full of some of the deepest, saddest rage um, of my whole life about the open and blatant settler colonial genocide ongoing in Palestine. The only time I've ever honestly felt anything close to this was when my dear friend Jasmine Jahan Shahi died in 2011. And Jasmine's actually the person who um, first taught me about Zionism and Palestine when we were in high school. So, That is all to say that as we talk about AI in healthcare today, please do not forget about the role that AI is playing in this brutal slaughter. Um, And so I'm going to start us there today. So in 2019, the Israeli army created a new division called the Targets Division. And according to reporting by Yuval Abraham, an Israeli journalist, Israel has devoted considerable resources to this project. Abraham explains that, quote, The idea was to bring together hundreds of soldiers and basically start to develop these AI algorithms and automated software to accelerate the target creation for strikes with life and death consequences in Gaza. So some listeners might remember that after the 11-day carpet bombing of Gaza in May of 2021, you may have seen reporting going around that was like celebrating or hopefully critiquing (laughs) the fact that Israel had just fought its first so-called, quote, AI war that was using something that this team uh, had developed. The algorithm is called gospel. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In reporting. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
It's a sick joke. Uh, In reporting by The Guardian on December 1st called The Gospel, How Israel Uses AI to Select Bombing Targets in Gaza, they wrote that this latest escalation of genocide had, quote, provided an unprecedented opportunity for the Israeli army to use such tools in a much wider theater of operations, and in particular to deploy an AI target creation platform called The Gospel, which has significantly accelerated a lethal production line of targets that officials have compared to a factory. So just to note, I'm going to break up the quote a little bit to cut out some of like the genocidal apology language in here, like uh, Israel slash Hamas war and shit like that. I'm not twisting their words, but I'm just like not interested in, in reproducing that shit. So, quote, uh, Avi Kachavi, who served as the head of the Israeli military until January, has said that the target division is, quote, powered by AI capabilities and includes hundreds of officers and soldiers. In an interview published before, um, so here they say before the war, I'll say before the escalation of genocide in early October, Kochavi, quote, said it was a machine that produces vast amount of data more effectively than any human and translates it into targets of attack. According to Kochavi, once this machine was activated in May of 2021, it generated 100 targets a day. Quote, to put that into perspective, in the past, we would produce 50 targets in Gaza per year. Now this machine produces 100 targets in a single day, with 50% of them being attacked. So the Guardian article continues, quote, precisely what forms of data are ingested into the gospel is not known. But experts said AI-based decision support systems for targeting would typically analyze large sets of information from a range of sources, such as drone footage, intercepted communications, surveillance data, and information drawn from monitoring the movements and behavior patterns of individuals and large groups. The target division was created to address a chronic problem for Israel. In earlier operations in Gaza, the Air Force repeatedly ran out of targets to strike. So... (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, we need a like we're not doing, you know, enough. Uh, this truly is like the industrial model for yeah. uh, killing people. It's like, well, whatever production figures aren't up, like we've ran out of widgets or whatever. And so well, let's have the computer find us some more people to kill. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we are going to like just setting the stage with this. I feel like we are going to see this over and over and over again with everything that we talk about today. You know, this program is like selecting targets, probably based on really crappy data that it's hoovering up. It's, you know, compressing that data somehow. You know, it's using like statistical or probabilistic math, you know, to to generate some kind of like score. And that score is determining, you know, whether something is going to be considered a target or not. And yeah, I don't know. Just at the very top, I want to I want to flag that we're going to see this like over and over and over again, that these AI systems, I mean, emphasis on the word artificial, right? Like these systems Mm -hmm. are not intelligent or (laughs) autonomous in any sense of the word, but they serve exactly the function that they are built to serve. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I also think they serve an important social function of allowing for the displacement of moral responsibility or moral authority onto these like very, you know, naive data-based automated systems. And that is very sinister. Absolutely. And I I mean, for anyone who's sort of still questioning maybe how this relates to AI and healthcare, right? This is also like a huge part of what that is, right? Because the truth is we actually can't talk about AI and healthcare without talking about what Palestinian public health scholar Osama Tanu calls the genocide, ecocide, nexus of settler colonialism. Mm. 
So to just quote Tanu for a moment from this essay that was published uh, this March in the Journal of Palestine Studies, but I think it was written back in 2021, um, called You As of Now Are Someone Else, Minoritization, Settler Colonialism, and Indigenous Health. Quote, when addressing Palestinian health, the effects of settler colonialism are reduced to a question of minority health for Palestinians in Israel, an issue of health in conflict zones for Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, or of migrant or refugee health in regard to Palestinian refugees. While they can be strategically important, such framings fail to capture the entire eco-social context that has produced and shaped the material and social conditions, behaviors, and patterns of disease for Palestinians, or the antecedents to their being a minority, refugees, or living in a conflict zone. So sorry, that was quite the monologue there, but I just wanted to bring this all in because, you know, as we've been saying, it's all very important context to set this all up. Yeah. And I think like another kind of through line here is that what we today call artificial intelligence evolved out of pattern recognition systems that were developed by like the U.S. military in the 1950s. And so, you know, these kind of like artificial intelligence technologies they originated in a context of war, you know, and, and of defense spending. And, you know, it's interesting to see the kind of like logics or problematics that they carry with them in contexts that are not uh, explicitly and, defense. And isn't part of the the rationale, right, or the, the political rationale for using these these things is that like you can create this fiction that you are not just engaging in you know, genocide, right? That like that you're mm -hmm. not just killing mass numbers of people that somehow like the math gives you this, you know, narrow, yeah. precise set of targets. I mean, is that, is that more but or less the sort of like the political, uh, uh, logic uh, of using these things is like, like, uh, like I don't see, you know, any other kind of like rationale for expending all of this kind yeah. of effort, ex except to create a smoke screen, um, so that you will have some sort of plausible deniability in the face of, you know, a mounting uh, and, and incontrovertible evidence yeah. that that's exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of folks, the lay public, as well as people that are involved in, you know, designing these systems, I think that a lot of people, I mean, yes, Phil, I think you're right. I think a lot of people have a lot of faith in the like kind of mathematics you know, and the opacity of these systems and the technical complexity of these systems. But I, I think you're right, like that what's really happening is that there is this idea. It's maybe not like so consciously and explicitly like we can create a smokescreen for ourselves, although I, I think that is a huge part of what's going on. I think a lot of the explicit thought process with this is this idea that we can literally mathematically optimize um <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we can we can mathematically optimize yes. mm -hmm. the number of people that are being targeted well, um, in Gaza, or we can it's mathematically like a optimize that it's the right people. Well, right? No, no. Right. I mean, it right, functions right. the same yeah. way that lists of criteria would. You know, but in, in, you know, before the increasing sophistication of these things, oh, who do we kill? I don't know. People that met these criteria: A, mm -hmm. B, C, D, one, two, three. And it's just like, oh no, you just killed. I mean, you, th those are just those are uh, uh, ex posts. Um, <laughs> rationalizations of, you know, like you can come up with any number of uh, such like rationalizations and you don't frankly need a computer to do it. But now 
you know, it just, I, th- I think the, the reason that it, it sort of works as a smokescreen is like, oh, well, you know, we like, we have the technology now. Human beings couldn't do it. Human right. beings might've produced bad, uh, you know, criteria. They might've produced criteria that were just, you know, uh, right. uh, you know, um, mathematically inefficient, suboptimal, math- math- mathematically inefficient or pretextual. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but now the machines, uh, you know, they, they can, they can tell us who we really should be, should have been killing all along, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you also can't like indict a machine and cross-examine it, right? Right? You can't ask, you can't ask the algorithm questions afterwards. You can't hold, you know, like a single individual responsible for these decisions. And, and just to sort of speak to your point, like Phil, about like sort of what Israel says this does for them, right? Uh, this is a quote from, from the Israeli military, um, when they were asked about the target division and the gospel algorithm, they said, quote, the unit produces precise attacks on infrastructure associated with Hamas while inflicting great damage to the enemy and minimal harm to non-combatants. So like they keep saying we have this like AI target bank and like it allows us to like make sure as far as possible, quote, there will be no harm to non-involved civilians. Here's another part of the next The reporting in The Guardian continues, quote, a former senior Israeli military source told The Guardian that operatives use a, quote, very accurate (laughs) measurement of the rate of civilians evacuating a building shortly before a strike. Quote, we use an algorithm to evaluate how many civilians are remaining. It gives us a green, yellow, red, like a traffic signal. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like like, gagging. Well, I think the important thing here in this like discussion that we're starting to get into around moral agency, I guess, um, in the use of these systems, like, I mean, it's interesting that in the quotes that you just read that they that these Israeli officials are literally describing what they're doing using the structure of like it's phrased like an optimization problem you know mm-hmm. like right. the way that the way that it's being communicated is phrased in sort of this like mathematically renderable way as as an optimization problem you know like we want to maximize the targets that are associated with Hamas which i guarantee you is just some shitty correlation oh, coefficient you know like um you know and minimize these these civilian uh, casualties or whatever. Uh, and it's and like you're saying, you know, it's the system that's doing this. But if there's any point that I really want people to take away from this episode, I'll say it now and probably repeat it like throughout. It's that these systems solidify human labor and knowledge. So these machines do not know anything that, you know, the teams of human programmers you know, developers, uh, people that are like planning out like what these technologies are going to be used for. Like it was even described in this article, you know, that the the sort of value added of these systems is that they can automate and really speed up, um, you know, computational tasks and things like that. And so, yeah, I just want to state at the beginning, like that these machines do not know anything that human beings don't know, but they often output, you know what I mean? Their their verdicts or their predictions in ways that are very difficult to parse, if not impossible to parse, you know, like it can mm-hmm. like if you have a really complex neural net or something, it's it's kind of like black box, like you can't see the process by which, <laughs> you know, the system arrived at at the final number that it did. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, it's, it's mystified by the technical complexity, but it's just kind of scrambling and chewing up and spitting back out like the knowledge and the tasks and the abilities that are, that are programmed into it. Well, I, I appreciate what you said a moment ago, Abby, too, about, you know, the roots of AI in warfare technology developed by the United States. One of the reasons why I uh, flagged my insurance denial at the top is not just like the fact that the first round was like mm-hmm. an automatic denial, but it's also the fact that the medicine was something called IVIG, which is immunoglobulin. And that is another technology that was developed uh, for, you know, the war in the Pacific theater shit. Like where it's like you, the U.S. is like, we have all these like Air Force people and like the blood supply isn't stable. How can we make like a shelf stable blood supply? And like they didn't figure it out, but they accidentally made IVIG instead. And that's that's one of many things like algorithms that were developed in a military context that sort of immediately become hoovered up um, as part of whether it's a sort of vast, uh, you know, pharmaceutical chain of production and a treatment that is used like in so many different diseases now and made by a bunch of different companies. Or, you know, if it's something as simple as, you know, the way algorithms also like immediately begin to be used in healthcare. This is one of the first uh, Mm non-military applications of algorithmic system intervention in particular is like within the healthcare space and within the management of like allocating access to pharmaceuticals. So one of the other reasons that this discussion is very timely, other than the, you know, connection between healthcare and health technology and war and AI and Palestine is that recently there was a Stat News and ProPublica investigation into practices that the largest private insurer in the United States, United Health, uh, was using in one of its subsidiaries to essentially employ algorithms that helped it juice the Medicare Advantage market. So from this November Stat News piece called United Healthcare Pushed Employees to Follow an Algorithm to Cut Off Medicare Patients' Rehab Care. This is a stat plus piece, so it's paywalled, unfortunately. Um, I'll read a quote. A United Health subsidiary called Navi Health set a target for 2023 to keep rehab stays of patients and Medicare Advantage plans within 1% of the days projected by the algorithm. Former employees said that missing the target for patients under their watch meant exposing themselves to discipline, including possible termination, regardless of whether the additional days were justified under Medicare coverage rules. The stringent performance goal was part of a broader effort to reduce expensive nursing home care for frail patients with privatized Medicare plans, the internal documents show. The strategy was conceived and executed by former top Medicare officials whose policies became a blueprint for United Health to reap hundreds of millions of dollars annually by shredding the government's safety net with payment denials backed by an algorithm. Now, this has also led to a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit. United Health has initiated a full top to bottom rebrand of Navi Health um, as a <laughs> yeah, result. Just a yes. rebrand, though. There were t- I was reading yes. about it and they were like, the logo will be changed and the logo for Navi Health will no longer appear right next to the office logo. <laughs> I know, Thank I mean, you this is- for your your patience at this at this difficult time. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is, you know, but the discourse around this scandal and, and this reporting and this lawsuit is that 
like, oh, look at this disruptive moment where we're seeing like algorithmic justice enforced by ProPublica and we're going to see oh, like justice for break. these yeah, Medicare. Okay. You know, like it's really telling, I think, in terms of like how surface level most people are thinking of this problem. You know, like the problem is not simply the algorithm here in this one instance, obviously, you were, you were pointing to. You know, nor even the incentive to design it, you know, as Phil, you were pointing to, this is like a very deep rot down to the political economy at its core, not even just the political economy of health. Right. I mean, this is the um, the very, very old, I think, fear of uh, autonomous machines. Right. Which I mean, as long as I think machines have existed, there is the you know, you, you can find, you know, trace evidence of people being the, the, the main thing that people focus on is like, oh, uh, you know, what happens when the machines become kind of like self-aware and, <laughs> you know, whatever, um, you know, run our lives and, you know, it's like strange love and, you know, all of the kind of different iterations of this. Right. But like at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, where do these machines come from? Why is it the case that uh, these Medicare Advantage plans are, you know, looking to use uh, mm -hmm. these algorithms to, you know, do thing do things that we've that they've done since inception, which is deny people care. Right. Um, and very, very obviously, their entire rationale here is that, you know, sometimes it can be hard to make money um, <laughs> in this sector. And especially when you have a lot of sick patients, actually an increasing um, market of patients that have uh, multiple comorbidities or any number of other things that they have to cover, you know, actually getting those profit margins to where your investors, you know, want them to be uh, becomes increasingly hard. And so you have to uh, do two things. <laughs> One, you have to find a way of doing this that basically skirts the boundaries of or challenges without being, you know, sued and uh, put into receivership, uh, the boundaries of Medicare rules. Right. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not surprising the guy who is sort of was in charge of this division um, used to be uh, like a clinical executive at Medicare, mm -hmm. uh, was like a top clinical administrator at Medicare. And uh, so they, you know, of course, bring this guy over through the revolving door and say, you know, like des basically design something for us uh, mm -hmm. or help us like think about how we conceptualize this approach to more efficiently and, and, and in greater number, like denying people uh, care without running afoul of, of Medicare rules. And, you know, he brings over this, you know, whatever factory concept from uh, what is it? Toyota. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Is this sort so, of like yeah. um, algorithmic uh, production Toyota, which reminded yeah, Toyota. me a lot, which reminded me a lot of the um, uh, uh, Atul Gawande article from the New Yorker about how healthcare should be more like Cheesecake Factory. Yes, <laughs> yes, sort of like, yes. yes, this is uh, exactly the kind of um, mindset that at the upper echelons of, you know, administrative hierarchies we're breeding. So it's again, all of this story is about human beings uh, responding to, uh, you know, the uh, absolutely sort of like yes. universal quest for profit within uh, within capitalism. And then the but the the focus like on the one hand is on like, oh, these like killer machines and like, how do we like do an algorithmic audit and like make these like neutral, competent algorithms, as well as, you know, how do we more appropriately regulate um, these companies uh, yeah. so that they don't uh, engage in this sort of stuff. But in both of those things, it's it just there since, you know, this 
kind of framework for for doing uh, policy existed, right? Since the rise of the regulatory state, you know, uh, what what Gianna Medico Magione calls the, the regulatory state, it, it's this response to uh, privatization and mm-hmm. to, de- to deregulation as opposed to like direct service provision. And it's like, well, we have to, one, the idea is like, we have to delegate to the private sector to do these things. And two, the, the government has to like be around to like make sure uh, that, uh, you know, within this like framework of like regulated capitalism, that uh, firms don't go too far outside the lines. Um, but what it does is it creates this like perpetual fiction that by that there is like a neutral neutral competent algorithm or a neutral competent bureaucrat yeah. that can administer these mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like that, that, that uh-huh. to so me true. is like. Totally. I mean, this reporting is like, you know, pretty amazing. But that broader thing, this idea that like, okay, now CMS is stepping in and they're going to regulate it, like it completely ignores uh, the fact that the same incentives are going to be there. Yes, it doesn't. They're exactly. going to do any number of things, but the same incentives are going to be there, and the structure is there, and they're going to keep following those incentives in one way or another. And the question is how. Right. I was just right. going to say, Phil. Like, I, I think this is so spot on because to say that you know, or to, to hand ring or pearl clutch about like, oh, you know, it's simply a matter of of making some kind of technical fix to this <laughs> algorithm. Like there's yeah. something wrong in the code of it that's making it spit out unfair uh, outcomes or, you know, outcomes, judgments that we decide are unfair um, as opposed to fair ones. That could never, ever happen because the social function of something like this NH predict, this algorithm that's being used in Navi Health is to get people out of expensive care settings as fast as possible to save money. And that's what it will do. Um, well, you know, it's, like, it's like, what is it like penny short pound foolish or whatever, because yeah. they're like trying to save health on like immediate acute care that in theory prevents things like the patient going home and falling and being back in the emergency room. Right. Right. And then they'd, you know, like the plan owes more money in that instance, but they're betting on the fact that like, you know, that in a lot of cases they can get away with it. And so that that sort of this is like that tiny little loop of opportunity that is being exploited here is essentially this kind of like gamble on like, can we save money now? Because how many people mm-hmm. out of this like group of people statistically will get further injured What if we send them home early? And like through iteration and exploration, we've created an entire mar- industry and market basically in this one tiny little narrow loop. It's <laughs> it's like Babbage principle stuff. Like it's 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 mathematically optimizing, yeah, the the profit that can be squeezed from sick people in this like little setting, you know, these not little settings, but like in these settings that are just part of like a larger constellation of of care. But again, you know, that's very algorithmic is that like you can, you know, you can optimize something for <laughs> kind of the setting that you're in, um, but it's it's much harder to like render the sort of context dependency of of that kind of like post-acute care, like health spending. And like, it's worth emphasizing. On the one hand, the whole uh, uh, premise of these algorithms is that they, it, you know, save, um, you know, they're, they're optimizing and thus changing human decisions, right? <laughs> but then <laughs> at the same time, optim or, you know, or whatever division it's called now within United Health, because they're obviously still doing this, you know, says, well, it's, you know, this is not like an off the shelf decision. Like some human being is sitting there. It's like, no, 
<laughs> you can't have it both ways. You created this thing to change the way you make decisions. You can't thereafter say, well, actually, we have a fail safe. It's a human being. Human beings are directed to follow these yeah. uh, th- these orders. Um, and, and, and in fact, you're incentivizing them to do so by threatening them with, uh, <laughs> like being fired for not doing mm-hmm. so. So mm-hmm. I, like, I'm sorry, like you created the monster, the monster is yours. Um, but the, the things that these algorithms, it's, it's not, it's not ambiguous situations <laughs> that they're failing in. Right. They're like, this is a person who's in a skilled nursing facility and they can't do any of the things that they would need to be able to do to be discharged to home, right? They can't, like, it's, they are not rehabilitated uh, enough to actually, like, for home to be, like, a safe environment in any right. way. And and the direction is to discharge them, um, you know, immediately. And I, I think the uh, um, amazing thing about this is that the sort of implicit or sometimes explicit argument, like, no, 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 these are actually, like, uh, clinical judgments that are tailored to, you know, the <laughs> right. the particular needs uh, or demands of the patient, because that's sort of like what that's Medicare's whole problem with this. And the way that they've like structured the rules is that you can't do this, what they call like a rule of thumb. You actually have to clinically assess, yeah. you know, a person before discharging or like changing, uh, changing their care. Um, and obviously, like an algorithm is like a rule of thumb on on steroids you know, but this idea that like, no, 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 we're, we're actually reviewing these cases. So it's, it's, it's very funny. It's like one, we're not responsible because the computer told us to, but two, we're not like, <laughs> we're not responsible because we're actually what, like y- having a, a kinder, gentler version of what the computer would have told us to do. Right. Well, I think that's why your point, Abby, about like this, the social function of algorithms is so key, right? Because if, if we just like kind of look at these pieces without some of that piece of the critique, right? Like it just seems like, oh, we got a bunch of bad actors here making bad algorithms and like we got to make better ones, I guess. I don't know. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but to to your point, Phil, this is like a very um, sort of specific and interesting relationship also that these private companies have with Medicare and with Medicare's design and things like that. Like, as we talked about briefly, one of the guys who basically took over Navi Health when United Health bought it was a former Medicare top clinician. But there's like deeper connections actually with Navi Health that predate United Health that are also deep connections with Medicare and CMS. So I'm just going to read a a couple quotes again from this same uh, stat news piece uh, from early November that I was reading just for that context to bring in. Quote, UnitedHealth's Optum division purchased the company in May 2020 in a deal valued at $2.5 billion. In early 2020, just before it acquired Navi Health, Optum recruited the perfect candidate to take charge. This is the Toyota thing. Quote, Patrick Conway was not just a seasoned insurance executive. He also had served as Medicare's top clinician and was a leading advocate for rooting out unnecessary care during the Obama administration. I mean, Phil, to your point right. about Atul Gawande, we should make healthcare more like a cheesecake yeah, factory. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, So the article continues, quote, Conway espoused a philosophy drawn from an unlikely source, the automotive industry's Toyota production system. It has gained popularity in healthcare and is known as lean management. The Toyota approach focuses on improving quality and productivity by eliminating low value work. 
Instead of, quote, do no harm, its inventor, the Japanese industrial engineer Taichi Ono, started with a much different premise. First, reduce waste. <laughs> yeah. Toyota pioneered lean management to crank out sedans for less money and with fewer defects. In following this strategy, Navi Health could achieve similar results for chronically ill patients recovering from hip surgeries and strokes. By the time yes, we're discharging your mom, uh, you know, she isn't actually able to, you know, have any activities of daily living uh, on her own. But she does have a cup holder now for some reason. So I don't know how that works. <laughs> so this is the last part, a quote from this I'll read because this is really kind of like brings you to like full nausea if you aren't already feeling sick. Uh, quote, by the time Optum bought Navi Health, the company had already built a version of an algorithmic assembly line for managing Medicare Advantage members. So before the Toyota mo model comes in, quote, Navi Health was founded by Tom Scully, who ran Medicare under former President George W. Bush and played a pivotal role in creating Medicare Advantage. He sold the company in 2015, part of a chain of deals that led to its acquisition by Optum. Now, folks may remember that in the episode where we talked about me losing access to IVIG, that we had an extended period where we talked about the creation of Medicare Part D during the Bush administration and the creation of Medicare Advantage. And the guy who set up this company, right, that is in so much hot water right now, is someone who was very intimately involved in the design and implementation, most importantly, the implementation of Medicare Advantage. And so what we see here is not just like a problem with an algorithm or merely a problem with the guy who took it over and implemented, you know, the idea of first reduce waste, which is just so on the nose. Like if we had this quote when we were writing health communism, my God, right? But it's actually that the entire like, you know, $2.5 billion company that United Health purchased, like that that valuation of $2.5 billion comes from the fact that this is a like a product that is like designed by someone who designed the market it's supposed to exploit. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what you'd want to do. It's He's exactly yeah. the person you'd want to hire right. um, to right. do this. I mean, it's, it's the perfect thing, which is, again, why I think, you know, this, you know, because like one response to that, okay, and I think that that this response parallels the knee jerk response that tech journalists and other advocates have to algorithms is that, you know, we can audit it, design a rule to neutralize it. And voila, you will have either an algorithm that does not invidiously, you know, make reproduce inequality. Uh, re well, reproduce inequality or make literally just, just abysmal, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, clinic judgments with abysmal clinical implications, uh, or have a, you know, a bureaucracy or a bureaucrat, uh, or a, uh, a relationship between firms and, and the bureaucracy that isn't, you know, monumentally corrupt. But I think the, the fact is like, there've been any number of rounds of algorithmic auditing exposés, mm. you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, in this sort of information warfare aspect of these things and, and changes to, you know, bureaucratic, uh, rules like whatever. Obviously, it should be harder to do the revolving door thing, but they're going to find a way. You can design any rule you want; they will find a way around it because the <laughs> impulses are the same. Like that's uh, that's yes. the thing that I think. Like it's like yeah, okay. Obviously, they got Scully. Obviously, uh, they wanted a person who understood uh, not just the marketplace, but the rules that uh, you know dictate 
uh, what you can and, and sort of can't do um, in, in the marketplace. And, and who better than the person who, you know, was there was their daddy. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, but I think that focusing part is like part of the thing that frustrates me every time these situations come up is that like you you start getting this notion that like, oh, yeah, maybe there could be a better Medicare advantage somehow. Like, or, or maybe there could be like a better, it's like, no, there can't be, obviously there can't be because like the scandals that we're seeing with, with Medicare Advantage today are the same thing, but in a different, uh, costume as the scandals that we saw 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This is the logic of having private companies be brought inside the state and, and kind of paid off to be these, uh, intermediaries between people and, and benefits that they you know, have a statutory right to enjoy. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the real, um, I think the real like political, uh, injustice and sort of just like, uh, illegitimacy of the entire like aspect of like regulatory capitalism is like, yeah, that you have a statutory right to these things, but, uh, only, but evidently now under, uh, under the law only to the extent that the private intermediary says, uh, that you do. Mm. Yeah. Such a good point, Phil. <laughs> and I think, Something that I feel like both of you have been kind of circling that I will maybe just phrase in different terms is like, if you if you really think about like what this NH predict is for, it doesn't make sense on a technical level because there is no ground, you know, so-called ground truth for like the optimal number of days that a person quote unquote should spend recovering from like a hip replacement or something. You know, so there's there's a lot of instability at a technical level here. You know what I mean? So like there is just kind of like radical, almost uh, like ontological instability in the things that these systems are even trying to predict. Basically, like to say that these systems function technically in an accurate sense is is just <laughs> not true. You know, like there, mm-hmm. there has to be something behind there has to be something else behind the motivation for building, deploying you know, talking about these systems in the way that they're talked about, because like, yeah, technically it, it just, it doesn't make sense to use an algorithmic, it doesn't make sense to use an algorithmic procedure to really like help you decide how long someone ought to stay in post-acute care. But it makes a ton of sense to use an algorithmic procedure to determine how much you want to pay for somebody. You know what I mean? Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's... Yes, you put in that rule, like, I don't want to, you know, you have to optimize optimize under this spending exactly. condition. We, exactly. And, 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 and of course, like, that's the entire uh, function of these... Here's, here's what I got. <laughs> thinking, thinking out loud about this. The logic of mathematical optimization is incompatible with the stated goals of something like, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, And I think that that creates a lot of confusion, right? Because people are looking at these tools and thinking like, oh, well, if only we could just make the tool fairer, you know, then it would align, you know, like the tool, we we need to make the tool align with like the stated goal of of Medicare, Medicaid. I don't know that anyone is thinking about it in, in exactly those terms, but um, if you look at what the tool is actually doing, I feel like that tells you something about what the actual goals <laughs> of, mm-hmm. you know, like United Health, um, you know, newly vertically integrated United Health, like really are. What is a health insurance company for? It is not for providing health care. It is for the actuarial management 
and redistribution of risk, right? Yeah, like, that's an explicitly stated. That would be like in health insurance 101. company 101. Yeah. 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 Like I think part of what why I, I wanted to bring in that like specific quote from The Guardian about the gospel, right? Is because at the end, like that last statement about like, well, it was created to solve a problem. And the problem was that Israel wanted to do more bombs and Israel wanted to kill more people. Mm -hmm. And that, right, becomes the problem. I mean, I'm actually, I'm, I'm having like such heavy flashbacks to the conversation the three of us just had about the so-called Medicaid unwinding and the idea that we talked about towards the end about how, you know, the, one of the reasons why it seems like people appear, especially in the health policy space, to feel like, oh, it's not really that big of a deal <laughs> or feel inclined to tell us that the unwinding is way less of a problem is because the idea that sort of the free rider problem that one third of the country, right, was on the uh, safety net insurance of the last resort for the poor and that, you know, that potentially could destabilize the entire um, financial solvency of the United States, right? And this is also something actually like I talked about with Astra because she gets into this in her book, The Age of Insecurity, in another recent patron episode. But, you know, kind of like what I love here, Abby, about what you were just thinking out loud about is like, <laughs> you also have me now thinking about uh, the work of Artie Lang, which I know you've been reading recently, Abby. And, <laughs> and yeah. um, you know, I think as Lang would if he were, you know, alive and still cool, you know, if we had a cool version of him alive here right now. Artie you Lang know. asterisk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he would be like, yeah, but guys, like, okay, reality is subjective, right? And language shapes reality. So whatever sort of the problem becomes can take up, you know, someone's entire world and it will obscure the fact that perhaps that is like a choice that is relative to very specific values, right? So mm -hmm. most people think it is the job of health insurance companies to provide health care, right? Health insurance executives, they know health insurance 101. They know their job is the, as we wrote in health communism, the endless deadening management of risk, Right. They sleep at night because they tell themselves, we all just don't understand the pressures they're under, right? That we all just don't understand that it's not their job to give everyone health care. It's their job to manage the scarce resource of risk, right? And the ways that when you are exposed to too much risk, it can remove you from the workforce, and how that can have negative implications on the economy. And so it is their job not to provide health care, not to finance care, but to manage risk and prevent waste, right? So, like, this is why it's important to think about, like, healthcare relative to, like, the power of the state, what we think about what healthcare is supposed to be, particularly if you live in a country where you have, you know, a socialized system like the NHS, like in Canada, like the German healthcare system is a really good example, the French one, right, where we start to see like, okay, like these these big problems, right, that that we design algorithms to solve, right, which which to Navi Health is like some of those people might not need that much rehab care after hip surgery. <laughs> 
which is heinous, right? Like, but if you are coming from the perspective and coming from the reality that, you know, you are there to manage risk, right? And to distribute it. And and that is what you are provisioning is risk, not care. Then to you, what makes sense is very different from like what makes sense to the average person, let alone to the three of us who are such like fucking perverts that we are <laughs> like deep in this shit, right? So so like what what we all are sort of up against is like, and why I really wanted to sort of connect like the Palestine example to United Healthcare um, is that, you know, when we look at the statements that Israel made about their algorithm, right, it can give us a way, a lens of interpre- interpreting like the statements that are being made about United Health's algorithm. Because if, if like the answer to Israel's problem of them just wanting to do more bombs is design a gentler algorithm, right? Like that is so, that should be rather, <laughs> that should be so obviously unacceptable that it's fucking ludicrous, right? right. What's the optimal number of bombs right. to drop on Gaza? Like right. it's zero and we all know that it's zero, you know, but uh, yeah. There's, no, as exactly. Long as, yeah. <laughs> right. But then we, then we sort of, if we translate that, right. And if we start to like make sure that we're drawing these connections and maintaining those juxtapositions in our mind when we're thinking about other applications of AI and the kind of, you know, <laughs> proposed uh, fixes for these like, you know, extractive, exploitative, you know, brutal systems that mismatch with what the general public thinks like health insurance companies do, right? Which then, according to media accounts, creates a demand for health insurance companies to do what the public thinks they do when in reality they're just like still sleeping at night being like, they don't know what the fuck our actual jobs are, which is to manage risk and redistribute risk and maintain the workforce. Like, and keep the country going like they in their own minds are, are, you know, like integral to not just each individual worker's health security, but the health security of the entire nation. Right. And their job is to prevent waste. So it just like, so happens. I mean, that's just it's it's a very nice kind of convenient thing that that logic dovetails seamlessly uh, with any number of other narrow uh, private interest. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's worth noting that like in one year, the amount of money saved uh, that United Health saved using this algorithm, it's about equivalent, I think, to their margin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that yeah. that algorithm, you could think about it, that is their margin. That algorithm is extractive abandonment. And without it, Phil, as you were talking about, you know, it's like it ceases to be quote unquote competitive. So. Right. No, I think it, it is funny to me there's this sort of family resemblance between the way that algorithms themselves like create their own like politics uh, around themselves. That's, that's very distinctive. And it reminds, I guess the family resemblance is to other kinds of, uh, you know, technical debates and thinking about like, what's the optimal number of bombs. I mean, that, that just reminds me of like the strategic bombing study, um, that the Air Force commissioned the Rand Corporation to do, you know, in the you know late late fifties, um, mm-hmm. and it's like you know once you are once you frame the question once you start asking the question in that way, um, then you're having then then you're sort of debate then you're just into specifics right then you're just sort of bargaining or haggling uh, over details you're no longer thinking about what what the goals are 
um, who's advantaged by them, who's disadvantaged by them. It, it becomes a completely technical um, problem. And I think this is, you know, I think there's an interesting thing, which is that the way that people have thought about the problem of like the regulatory state, uh, which is, a you know, like this term that social and political theorists started using you know, roughly in the late 1970s, kind of contrasting this idea of the regulatory state to like the dirigist state or the state that like does direct service provision that has kind of state industries and, and so on. The regulatory state is like, you know. Uh, uh, capital is delegated all of these functions that were once seen as the exclusive province of the state. And then it sort of uses uh, rules to kind of govern uh, what they do. But like one longstanding problem that people have recognized kind of since that um, approach to government came about was this idea that like once you framed something in a technical way, once you've, you know, interpose the problem. Like the problem is we haven't written the perfect rule yet. The problem <laughs> is that we have not come up with the unbiased algorithm yet. And I think this is particularly, you know, in recent years, you know, there's been this debate about, uh, you know, sentencing algorithms, like in, yeah. in, um, you know, pretrial sentencing and things like that. And the racial bias is sort of implicit in that because obviously these algorithms are using an actuarial logic, which has all of these predictors of who is, you know, who is incarcerated for longer. And so just sort of like whatever re recapitulates that in, in the way that sentencing is done. But, but again, the, the way that people frame that problem as well was like, well, maybe if we made the algorithm transparent or uh -huh. if we had better you know, gave judges data. more control over it, uh, or if what, you know, what if we um, had some sort of like audit uh, over it, or we didn't allow the algorithm to use certain kinds of criteria. <laughs> and, and you see the same thing here. It's like, what if, you know, what if we were able to uh, tweak the algorithm to remove some of these problems? What if we let humans uh, or required humans to make uh, a closer kind of like technical uh, judgment about these things? And humans already the, are. They're deciding that you have to follow them or you'll exactly, get fired. Right? <laughs> and that's the thing. So, I, I mean, and I think that the. Um, Such a good point. If, yeah. You know, I, so this fall, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, nicely get, you know, gave me an example for this uh, logic when they published this rule that was, you know, among other things, a response to news about these algorithms. And the rule basically said, look, it has always been. Um, the law, you know, or in, in the regulations that you have to, you know, make these coverage decisions based on individual, individualized, like clinical judgments, right? Not, you cannot use an algorithm or anything like it. But, you know, the response, so, you know, usually what CMS does when it gets these things or often what it does, I, I should say, when it, you know, does these rules is basically they, they make the, the uh, uh, proposed rule and then the companies come in and they lobby it aggressively and then CMS sort of waters it down a little bit. In this case, they basically said, no, we're not watering it down. Um, but that belies the fact that it's already pretty, shall we say, watery. Um, there's no clear penalty uh, for not following the rule. And as if to um, echo that, one of the sort of executives from one of these firms is using the algorithm said, look, everything that we're doing is already in compliance with CMS policy, right? And mm -hmm. it's in a way this is like a little cheeky. Uh, it's like, well, you know, you're not going to find, like there's no monetary penalty here. We're not, we're not, we're put it this way. If what we're concerned about is our bottom line, 
the bigger threat to our bottom line is following the rule as rigidly as you think we want, you know, uh, we think you want us to. And uh, then then following it, whatever, lackadaisically and risking uh, getting getting slapped. Um, and, and so that's and that's the thing is like, but I, I do find it interesting that typically an algorithmic controversy emerges, it makes itself or the algorithm itself the the locus of action uh, or the locus of attention rather than all of the social conditions that preceded and generated um, the algorithm. And I think that that relates to what, <laughs> Abby, what you were sort of saying before. Yeah, there's a there's a great kind of uh, illustration of, of just this phenomenon that you're describing now. I wish I don't have this in my notes because... I did. I wasn't like preparing specifically to talk about this, but um, I feel like it was a news story from 2019 or something like that about a predictive policing algorithm that had been used in, I think it was the city of New Orleans and they started using it and it did what predictive policing algorithms do, right? Like you train them on crime data, which are heavily socially constructed, you know what I mean? And heavily... um, you know, like the data that the algorithm has to learn from reflects, you know, the inequalities of the real world, you know, so, so it started, you know, this feedback loop, it was just sending cops to already, you know, like heavily over-policed black neighborhoods and things like that. And there was kind of a big story afterwards because I, and I don't remember uh, where this push originated from. I don't know if it was like internal to the police department, if it was the state, if it was like the DOJ, whatever, but somehow, somehow, some way they undertook just one of just, just what you're describing, Phil, one of these kind of audits of the algorithm that they were using. And the takeaway from it was like, oh, well, the data that we're training it on are just super biased because (laughs) the data that we're training this algorithm on are just showing that it's, sending cops disproportionately to, you know, these like handful of this handful of, of, of black neighborhoods. Um, and so what we're going to do is that we're just going to like, I, I mean, the, to me, this is so heinous. This is like something you should never do. They were like, we're just going to correct the training data so that it's Ugh. not biased anymore. Like we're just going to go in, muck around in the data and hope that the tool like learns the right lesson from the actual pattern of police interactions. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that exists in the world out there. So like the tool is just what it's learning. It can only learn from the past. It can only learn from things that are like kind of solidified as, as data. Um, and the things that are solidified as data internalize all of these like social forces, political forces, all of this stuff. Um, but then, you know, yeah, when the, when the algorithms like reproduce that that stuff, you know, then uh, I don't know if it's, it's the veil of, of technical complexity. It's the, the moral work. I think that these like algorithms are allowed to do, but you know, it's, it's very easy to just go like, oh my gosh, well, the data must be so wrong or this algorithm isn't transparent enough. And it's like, no, it's very simple. What's going on here actually. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's no surprise that like, uh, you know, the, the people who were running, um, these like, you know, United Care, Navi Health companies, right. Who worked at Medicare, Conway and Scully. These are guys who are part of what's called like the value-based care school of thought. And so, you know, that is like a way of sort of translating human need into like a vast array of allegedly countable and measurable inputs and outputs mm-hmm. and costs and benefits, um, which, you know, anyone who, any of us who have experienced care 
uh, in our lives, right? Like know that you cannot like really measure one hospital stay to the next, right? Like you can do like the same surgery on two people and they're two totally different like people with two totally different immune systems and bodies and they're going to respond different ways. You can do the same surgery twice on the same person and they might respond totally different both times. So the idea that in particular we could like predict a way of kind of like finding that sweet spot between like totally fucking over someone's recovery, breaking even instead of making money is also really about imposing a kind of fantasy on the body that we can, you know, and a fantasy on medical treatment itself and the practice of medicine, right, that we can actually like really, really confine and quantify and measure these things that are fundamentally like quite chaotic, unpredictable, social, and also biological processes, mm-hmm. right? And and both of these guys, um, Scully and Conway, and a lot of the people in the value-based care school of thought, right? They're part of this like movement that has been really, really popular since like the, I, I would say like since like around when Medicaid expansion actually starts to begin to be implemented, you have it like really getting popular 2015, 2016 also. And this is like an idea that, you know, there really isn't enough and it isn't enough access to skilled nursing. You have all of these like wait lists for long term care. What if we use technology to bring care into people's homes? I mean, there's a there's a, a terrible like word for this called hospitals without walls. <laughs> Um, As if your (laughs) living room makes it a hospital. I don't know. But it's it's open air uh, hospital. Yeah, it's a kind of techno solutionism. I wrote about this like way back in 2021 because there was this like AstroTurf group founded by like Amazon Care and, you know, all of these different care groups that was basically to like advocate for moving skilled nursing care into people's homes, basically. Um, And like one of the things that's like, I think really interesting is is that if you sort of think about what that, you know, Obama administration mindset about care was, the the thing that Phil referenced, the idea of like, let's make healthcare more like Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> what I think I'm kind of trying to get at here is that ultimately the issue with algorithms is that they really play into the mythology of choice at the core Ooh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I I ended that essay, which isn't like a very good essay. I was like angry and it's all over the place. And, I, <laughs> you know, whatever. It was a substack thing. I just <laughs> wanted people to know it was happening. But I ended it with a quote from Deshaun L. Harrison's great, great fucking book, Belly of the Beast. And uh, I said, these socioeconomic political structures do not need reform. They do not need entrepreneurial curiosity and disruption. They need total destruction. If we go back to the beginning, if we pull up the roots, unless the social institutions are destroyed, we can only ever return back to the place we left. And like, I think the way that I'm thinking about these algorithms is that they like help reinforce and return us to the myth of choice and retain its like the centrality of the myth of choice in our political economy, you know, and that's why these are like attractive um, industry investments. You know, this is uh, skilled nursing facilities and all, all that sort of move to translate like skilled nursing into the home environment to create hospitals without walls. This is like a huge space for investment for for all sorts of venture capital firms and uh, like all of that sort of speculative, like parasitic shit that, that happens around healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always have to be yeah. looking to like, what is the actual root there? 
mm-hmm. the very core that we're actually looking at because so much of that like solutionism, so much of the 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 Medicare proposal to sort of intervene in this algorithmic situation, the idea that we could, as Abby, you were saying, like, you know, clean up the data and make it work somehow, right? Um, the idea yeah. that there is an optimal amount of bombs to drop, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, at the end of the day, like, this is like one big kind of fantasy about like what choice is. And, and it also maintains the fantasy at the same time. There's, I guess there's kind of two ways that I'm thinking about this. One is sort of, um, the embeddedness within kind of the social structure, the political economic incentive structure, whatever, which is, you know, any, any health, any executive of United Health is going to direct a team of people to make an algorithm that is going to do exactly this, because that is what, you know, the executive of United Health is incentivized um, to do. I also think that there is some of this, some of this logic that you're describing And this is incredibly galaxy brain. And we have Sandro Galea to thank for this because I was Ah. (laughs) I was like reading something about Sandro's book and, uh, you know, or something on his Substack, the healthiest goldfish. And he's bellyaching about how public health fucked up COVID so bad because public health has lost touch with its core enlightenment values of, you know, free and open debate, basically. And I was reading this. And I was thinking, okay, but public health does have enlightenment values, but the enlightenment values that public health has, or that, you know, we can say healthcare more broadly, uh, is, is Malthusianism, not anything having to do with with like free and open (laughs) debate and Malthusianism, as we know, you know, is like a huge intellectual antecedent to population control movements. One of the most famous of those being eugenics. The mathematical tools, the technical tools of statistics are like they were all developed in response to kind of eugenic problematics, you know, these questions about heritability mm-hmm. and whatever. And it, it all sort of centered around, you know, the 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 inappropriateness of using social policy to try to remedy um, social inequality at all. But these statistical tools, right, that, that came sort of directly out of this intellectual lineage that starts with Malthus and moves through all these eugenicists, you know, through the 1800s and into the 1900s, these statistical tools are the internal architecture of these, of these algorithms. And so I think it's not surprising. Now, I'm not trying to say something super, super like conspiratorial or whatever, you know, that these are intelligent machines that are carrying out, you know, <laughs> Thomas Malthus's you know, wishes from, from beyond the grave or whatever. Um, but I do think that this is, is a huge part of the reason why the logic of this kind of like algorithmic management seems to dovetail so nicely, you know, like they're, they're really just kind of coming out of the same intellectual currents, I think that, that reach back to the 1700s. And, and it's important to emphasize, I think also from a technical perspective, um, with these algorithms, like, these are not like these are old technologies mm. and yes. old techniques that are I mean, you know, Facebook can do, you know, like spam predict, you know, or ad targeting or whatever really well with these really old tools because Facebook collects these like massive, massive volumes of data and can, you know, can just brute force it and and train these things to perform in a way that seems kind of okay. But like the first neural net was invented in like 1957 or something. You know what I mean? Like 59, something like that. Um, so like these are not like, there's a lot of hype around these tools 
being, you know, so cutting edge or whatever, but like internally, even these, even these large language model, you know, like things like chat GPT, like they rely on an internal statistical architecture, you know, when you're, when you're deploying, whether it's like the crappiest risk prediction algorithm, which like I, you know, we don't know what's in NH predict because it's like proprietary. So many of these algorithms are, which is a huge problem. I mean, I, I am in favor of transparency in the sense of, you know, we should know what these things are trained on, how they're being built, you know, like what their, what their internal architecture is, like what they're using as inputs. But, you know, anything from, you know, the most sophisticated sort of like large language model to the crappiest sort of clinical prediction model, like just like a logistic regression or something um, that's spitting out a risk score, which is probably much more similar to what is, is inside these, these algorithms um, or this algorithm that United Health was using. Um, it's all the same kind of internal statistical architecture that's doing the same kind of thing. And um, again, the, yeah, the internal construction or the internal contents of these models um, come from the same kind of lineage. No, I think that's such a good point. And I really, really appreciate the connection you, you drew there, Abby, because it's, it's like, this is even quite literally like just, you know, has a, direct through line to uh during the early days of covid like epic had the deterioration index right which was this like weird sort of proprietary black box algorithm that was like supposed to roll out like a, a triage score um to sort of predict like where those resources in the early months of covid when like we didn't really know how to treat it uh ventilators were at low capacity you know it was like kind of chaotic there were a lot of people sick um so this is like, remember, like back early in the first few months of the pandemic, there was like reporting pretty much right away. That's like XYZ hospital system initiates new triage protocol saying that like intellectually disabled people like are not going to get care if they get COVID, you know, and, and there was a lot of like focus on that um, briefly for a moment there. And, you know, the deterioration index, which is just like a t terribly... I mean, what is it with like the name of all these things? First of all, like gospel, I, I that's like a whole other uh, situation. But yeah. um, to the themes that we discussed, um, you know, in our our episode about COVID data and COVID deaths, and also in COVID year four, is that like it's really kind of funny to think about back in like you know March April of 2020 the idea that like epic's little black box algorithm was somehow like a fair way to distribute the moral burden of like denying people care mm -hmm. in order to provide care for some right because we always talk about it as like who gets the care not like who's not going to get the care right. but that's right. the as other rationing side of it. Right. right. Like <laughs> just listening to you talk about that. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm so like loose this episode and no, just like coming in off, really this hot and like off key, but it's fine. It's my Donna Jean God show, you know, era. Oh, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> um, but just thinking about, you know, like hearing you describe, yeah, like the, the logic of, of rationing and stuff. I mean, again, that's very Malthusian logic, right? Mm -hmm. Is the, the logic of, of healthcare rationing. But I thought it was really interesting because there's been uh, like lawsuits over United Health's use of this algorithm. Like there's a class action lawsuit, I think that's that's right. currently underway. And, you know, before the lawsuit was filed, I think I, I had sent um, around to sort of like the death panel, <laughs> like uh, group chat, um, some articles, because there were some congressional hearings about this. And I thought that the congressional hearings were so interesting because mm. the, the 
both the Democrats and Republicans are each trying to do it in different ways, but they're both trying to thread this needle of, okay, these algorithmic care denials are clearly unfair, but the logic of rationing in general, like must maintain (laughs) intact, you know, like must be maintained intact. So like, it's bad when an algorithm does it, you know, but when a healthcare company, you know, just like, you know, when, when whatever the, 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 the typical, or the, the human-centered decision-making process is results in a care denial, then that's fine. You know, like, then that's yeah. somehow, like, totally fair and, and fine. I just thought that was funny. It doesn't take much in this world. I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, it doesn't take much to uh, uh, get, trap people in a kind of circular logic or, like, a maze where it's like, oh, what do we fix for – what do we do now? <laughs> oh, we do this? Or, like, we – like, you know, it's – there are so like when you're focused on all of these sort of details, um, then you're obviously, go, you know, going to miss the actual like large levers. And and also when you want to maintain when you can't actually sort of divest yourself of this, you know, idea of rationing, it actually sort of reminds me of be we're sort of talking about the early, you know, public outcry over uh, cases of rationing, which I think was maybe one of the first episodes I ever came on before yeah. I was on the podcast. We talked about the, um, was it a CBS program or NBC, uh, program from the 1960s, uh, who shall live about, yeah. uh, the, the first dialysis, uh, sort of major, um, uh, dialysis patients in a Swedish hospital in Seattle. And, you know, whatever the scandal was, you know, the, one of the committees, um, was, you know, basically decided what, you know, wasn't just like, could you afford it? And what, you know, were you like a candidate for the procedure and so on? It was like, you know, are you worth, are you worth saving? You know, this candidate, this, this committee that was portrayed in shadow. Um, and, uh, but, it, but it's interesting, right? It's like, okay, that, that's scandalized inadequate uh, access to sort of dialysis treatment. And you could say that it, it probably is one reason why the dialysis benefit was included in Medicare and the social security amendments of 1972, but, you know, these sort of the scandalous situation that occurs once in a while, it is kind of interesting because once it's resolved in some way, um, it al- it really does allow people to think that uh, that that logic has, you know, has been challenged in some more fundamental way. And it's like, oh, we don't do that. It's like, yes, we do. <laughs> we obviously do. We've just like come up with different ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. When we were sort of planning this episode, I uh, I threw uh, in the outline a 1962 Life magazine article about, you know, this this committee, the Life and Death Committee uh, in Seattle. And so just for listeners who might not be familiar with the story, um, I'm going to read you like a, a quick little excerpt from this 1962 piece. And um, it's, you're just going to hear like so many echoes of, of what we've been talking about this whole time. So um As medicine advances and invents assorted other mechanical organs, millions of people with quote-unquote fatal diseases may be given the same second chance at life, which John Myers was one of the first men in the world to receive. So this is basically like a profile of one of the people who the Life and Death Committee like basically chooses to be one of the first recipients of of dialysis um, in Seattle, um, as Phil was setting up. Quote, but the brave new world... But the brave new world in which people may literally have hearts of gold or nerves of steel is not yet at hand. In the interim, agonizing practical decisions must be made. 
For the present, someone must choose which one patient out of 50 shall be permitted to hook up to Seattle's life-giving machines and which shall be denied. There is in Seattle a small, little-known group of quite ordinary people who have now made this choice five times and will make it five times more before this year is out. For John Myers and his fellow patients were not chosen by lot. They were not even chosen by physicians. Each was selected individually by an organization named, quote, the Admissions and Policies Committee of the Seattle Artificial Kidney Center at Swedish Hospital. Behind this magnificent polysyllabic facade stand seven humble laymen. They are all high-minded, good-hearted citizens. Me, me, me and me. (laughs) Much like the patients themselves who are selected as a microcosm of society at large. They were appointed to their uncomfortable post by Seattle's Kings County Medical Society, and for more than a year now, they have remained there voluntarily, anonymously, and without pay, like a humble little machine. <laughs> like a little church mouse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like a little node of a neural net. <laughs> yeah. These seven citizens are, in fact, a life or death committee. With no moral or ethical guidelines save their own individual consciences, they must decide, in the words of the ancient Hebrew prayer, who shall live and who shall die, who shall attain the measure of a man's days and who shall not attain it, who shall be at ease and who shall be afflicted. They do not much like the job. In the summer of 1961, the seven members of Seattle's Life or Death Committee met for the first time. They were a lawyer, a minister, a banker, a housewife, an official of state government, a labor leader, and a surgeon. So, you know, it was like reading this to Abby. I'm just <laughs> like, maybe this sounds wild, but I'm like, that's kind of a beautiful like example of like the algorithm is there to obscure the fact that this is a human choice. Yeah, and a cybernetic <laughs> system for uh, <laughs> for making the choice. Right. And right. And as you were joking, Abby, you know, like not joking, as you said very seriously, no, like that committee of people, that's like a decentralized computing network right there. It is. Yeah. And that's a nice kind of uh, a nice simile there, right? I mean, it's like the the way that this committee is portrayed on TV and in the magazine article, and actually you should go back and watch this special and because uh, it's sort of hammy, right? Like the mm-hmm. way that they do it is, is pretty, it's pretty hammy. It's, it's, uh, it's fun, which I of course like, um, but it is, it's creepy, right? It and is. it's sort of like, you know, uh, it's obvious to see where the term like death panel is, you know, comes from is like, you know, people are portrayed in shadow on TV and it's like, you know, it's there's a demonic, there's a frankly like demonic, um, you know, element Prince to of it. Darkness, and, yeah. yeah. And it's like, and similarly, you know, algorithms, they have the same sorts of, you know, trappings, um, although, you know, perhaps like in a slightly, you know, different way. Um, and I'm trying to think like what a, what a good filmic version of it is, you know, recently. Um, but I don't know, like choose one, like <laughs> rarely in a film are you going to see an algorithm portrayed like, you know, helpfully, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it's like a good, uh, worker bee. Um, but it does, I think in both cases, this idea, I think the thing that makes it alluring, but also makes it a little bit of misdirection is that the social function 
of algorithms is to create an illusion that human beings are not in control. Yes. Um, and that, and then in fact, collectivities of human beings, um, social orders um, are not in control. And, and I'm not suggesting that the technology doesn't matter or there's not something important about what the technology does uh, to shape the parameters um, you know, if you thought I'm not making that sort of anti, you know, or just sort of, uh, you know, technology has no, pl- pl- has no Delta in the thing. But I think the, the point is like, both of it is like both the image of that, that panel and, and the image of the algorithm is like the, the panel allows you to say like, well, these anonymous people made some decisions, uh, but, uh, they did it because nobody else would do it. Right. And like, it's not the administrators of the hospital also making those decisions. It's somebody else. It's a jury of your peers. It's what, you know, whatever, but still a kind of an illusion of, of the rest of us, of society itself and of the people affected by, uh, the denials of care being out of control. And similarly with algorithms, obviously, except the, the, the villain isn't like the, you know, person at the top of the hierarchy, the villain is whatever a machine. Um, but yeah, both of both of them function as this really nice, convenient way of of deluding ourselves um, that we can't do anything about it, and that's and that to me is the um, the the kind of big uh, takeaway, and why I think the the coverage of these things kind of doesn't really go far enough at illustrating like what the 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 roots of these of these evil technologies or whatever are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's no it's no surprise that in this life article. You know, and this is like maybe the final thing I'll just sort of bring in here today is that like the members of the committee like speak to life and are quoted and they're like not really comfortable with the decision that they made. They, you know, don't really feel necessary. Well, some of them feel they have a right. Ironically, the labor leader feels very <laughs> entitled to it. Um, I thought it was so interesting. I mean, people should read this article. We'll I link to it, it so in the Yeah. Yeah. We'll link to but it yeah, in the episode. I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. But, but there, from some of them, you know, there, there is a sort of sentiment of like, this is not like a decision we should have to make. And the committee itself you know, was formed because the doctors came together and said, you know, this is not a decision we should have to make, right? Never would, you know, be proposed to the patients, would you like to make the decision amongst yourselves? Would you like to live that, yeah. Right? Like, would you like to decide together, right? No, of course not. Um, Or, you know, the question's not being asked, how do we accommodate everyone who needs it as quickly as possible, right? Um, And that tells you something. But I think part of it, And why I also wanted it to be connected back to Palestine is that, you know, it's also about the offloading of a moral burden that comes with what, you know, capitalism prescribes, you know, uh, from so many different job functions. And I think as we've seen in particular in the example of the gospel employed by Israel to, you know, solve the problem of, you know, wanting to bomb more. It's like also important to think of algorithms as putting some of the blame and taking some of the moral burden away from humans and putting it onto the the algorithm, the machine, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And it's a way, you know, Phil, to your, you know, excellent socialism conference talk that I think of so much yes. lately, you know, this is a this is a mechanism also of avoiding blame and, you know, maintaining the conditions necessary to reproduce our political economy and the horrific, brutal iteration that we experience. Um, right. It's a good note to leave it on, I think. I think we'll leave it there today. I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we talk about this. Patrons. <laughs> so many more notes that I did not I even get into. <laughs> I'm like, I think we have to do a life or death committee. I think we have to do like a death panel episode. A dramatic again. reenactment of that oh God, <laughs> NBC yes. program. I want to be the businessman. Oh my God, yes. I'll be the surgeon. Um <laughs> Phil, who do you want to be? I want to be the the guy who they they follow the the patient and and the way that they like follow him to that door and they're like, uh, w- what happened to those people? Oh, ah, uh, they uh, they died. Um, you know, <laughs> so casually, all oh, that moment. Ah, oh, well, patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, pre-order Jules's new book coming very soon in January called A Short History of Transmisogyny, or request them both at your public library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.